You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Guidepost. Tony Friedrichs here. And I have a pretty cool special guest. A lot of y'all know we work with Cody Rubner a lot. Um, And Cody kept telling us about this guy down Mosquito Lagoon, passionate about pollution, passionate about his redfish, passionate about a lot of stuff and and said, we got to get him on the podcast. So to all our listeners, I would like to introduce Captain Billy Rotney. Welcome to the Guidepost. Thank you. So, Bud, tell tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Where where uh, where do you fish? What do you like to fish for? So, I'm I live in New Smyrna Beach, Florida, and uh, I fish everywhere from you know the the Ponce Inlet area and near shore Ponce Inlet, all the way down through the backcountry of Mosquito Lagoon and the Upper Indian River Lagoon system. I also fish to the north a bit up into Flagler County. Uh, in those areas as well. But the the primary focus of my business is on on redfish. They're really our dominant species in this area. We do catch tarpon, we do catch snook, we also catch sea trout, jack prevail, cobia, triple tail, et cetera. But the the vast majority of our fishing here is centered around redfish because they really are the you know dominant species that we have here in, in East Central Florida for the most part. What a beautiful area. Um Yeah, it sure is not without its problems, right? Of course not, unfortunately. You know, with as with all of, of Florida's estuaries, it's facing a great deal of issues and arguably some of the most pressing are occurring uh, here in the Indian River Lagoon system. A lot of people may be familiar with what's happening in the southern end of the Indian River Lagoon, which is about 150 miles south of where I live. So it's, it's a different problem. A lot of people tend to, tend to confuse the problems as being interacted uh, or interconnected, excuse me, with each other. They are not, uh, they, they, these problems in the south end of the Indian River Lagoon system are from uh, the diversion of Lake Okeechobee and uh, the outflows of water there instead of it flowing down through the Everglades, which is affecting a lot of all of South Florida, both sides of the state, as well as, as uh, Florida Bay. Our problems up here in the upper Indian River Lagoon are derived from nutrient loading, which is coming from development here in this part of Florida. Uh, Ironically, most of it is from from older development, even though more people moving here certainly does not uh, benefit the fisheries, but most new developments are built uh, with with sewer connections and they have, you know, mandated swales and retention ponds and there's things to help mitigate some of the nutrient loading happening from any individual system, however, uh, or to any system, excuse me, from any, any community, but a lot of the older communities that are not you know, modern construction, they have drainage that goes right into a grate, right through a pipe, right into the lagoon. And they have, a lot of them are on septic systems. A lot of the uh, sewer systems that are connected to the ones that aren't on septic are dated and have, have a lot of leaks in the, in the systems. Uh, or the actual sewage treatment plants uh, are the wastewater treatment facilities are really outdated and have a lot of issues. So that that nutrient loading has has built up in the lagoon for a long time 
And we've, we've really started to see those issues kind of, you know, come to, to head here in the past 10 or so years. How much grass have y'all lost, Billy? I, I, know, keep, we, I, I, I keep trying to keep my finger on the pulse of this stuff, but I heard a frightening number that was like 80%. Uh, it's it's and, more than that. Oh, lovely. Um, so, cause that's it, right? Like, for us in the Chesapeake Bay, it's 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 oyster reefs, and we're at less than one percent, right? Less than one percent of it historically what it was. So what you're saying is like y'all's beautiful, you know, river of grass is essentially more than eighty percent depleted. I I would say you know this is this is an anecdotal number uh, from from personal observation over the last twenty years of my life spending as much time on the system as as anyone if not more than, than certainly than the average, even regular user, the grass has, has essentially been extirpated to a level where you, if, up against some of the shallowest areas, just along the shoreline, where it's protected from overgrazing for manatees or where it's shallow enough that it can get enough light between algal blooms, um, there is some grass and it's, it's resilient enough that it doesn't want to completely die off, which is great. However, I mean, compared to the, the thousands and thousands of acres of coverage that we used to have, it's, it's absolutely minuscule. I, I would say if the, the, the historic grass bed coverage has been reduced by 95 to 98%. If there was actual scientific data that showed that, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. So it's very tragic that we've lost all of our grass. And how do you, you know, it's really hard to count fish. And it's nearly impossible to quantify, you know, the magnitude of that loss, right? So back in the day where you fish for redfish, you know, paint me a picture. Or are you are you polling are you polling that skiff and saying, hey, you know, 40 feet, 10 o'clock? Um what what's what's a good old day look like? So, you know, when I first started fishing the lagoon system. The, the water was clear year round. There was anywhere that the water was less than four feet deep, there was seagrass. And there was, there was deeper grass beds, there were shallower grass beds. And mind you, the, the Indian River Lagoon system is, is non-tidal. That's why it's a lagoon. So there literally is not a tide there. Now it is connected to the ocean. So over periods of like in the fall, we have higher water here in Florida. I'm sure you guys might have higher water up there as well. Uh, during periods of higher water and in winter, we have very low water during those different periods of time, the water level overall will, will rise and will fall, but we have essentially a tideless system. So it may vary, vary by, you know, six to 10 inches over, you know, a period of, of the year, but it's, it's generally very, very stable and consistent. And, and because of that, uh, wherever the water was you know, anywhere from a few inches deep up to four feet deep, there was seagrass. And that, that was a huge portion of the system because the lagoon is very shallow. With that clear water and that amount of grass coverage, we had a tremendous amount of forage for these fish. We had, you know, an unbelievable number of shrimp. We had crabs, um, blue crabs. We have other types of crabs, ornate swimming crabs, of course, fiddler crabs, et cetera. Uh, but mainly, you know, large blue crabs are, are a big food source for, for these reds. Um, tons of bait fish. We have croakers, we have spots, we have pinfish, pigfish, mullet, um, maharas. There was just an 
unbelievable amount of food for these for these fish here in the in the Indian River Lagoon system. So, you know, when when we would go out and fish for them before the lagoon started to to have any declines in the in the good old days per se, you know, you could go out and in Mosquito Lagoon, to put it in perspective, uh, is approximately 25 miles long. And the, the portion that actually had seagrass was about 20 or so miles long. And because once you got north of there, it was tidal. And, and in the tidal areas, we do not have seagrass here in this part of Florida. So uh, about 20 miles of the lagoon was a, a very seagrass rich estuary. And just in Mosquito Lagoon, it's about two miles wide. So within that 20 mile by two mile footprint, it was not unusual to have, you know, 20, 30 different schools of fish, whether it be slot fish or uh, schools of, of, of big bull reds that were, you know, some of them as big as, as, as 50 plus 55 inches. I mean, there was giant, absolutely giant redfish here. Uh, it was one of the only, only estuaries in the world where scientists discovered that redfish completed their entire entire life cycle in the estuary they didn't go to an inlet to spawn they spawned here in the lagoon system and that that internal cycle that took place here coupled with this perfect habitat just gave us unbelievable numbers of fish both you know small and large you know there was different classes of fish we had schools of of, of small reds rat reds that were between 18 and 22 inches we had medium-sized schools of fish that were uh, between 24 and, and you know 26 inches. Then we had the the upper class, you know, big fish that people wanted to fish for tournaments that were like 26, 28 inch size fish. And then once you got above that 28 inch mark, the fish would go out to deeper water, and uh, you didn't see them as much when they were between you know 28 and 35 plus inches. Um, those fish kind of they were around, but they just didn't feed as much. And consistently, they seem to move a lot more than the, than either the smaller class fish or the the full grown fish. And then the big bull reds were very consistent in the areas that they that they like to be. Um, typically, in large schools of fish, they would frequent the same areas um, year round. And, and specifically, the same fish we would catch the same fish. Redfish have spots on them; they're like fingerprints. You don't have to tag these fish to know that you've caught the same fish more than once. We've caught the same fish out of the same school, same area, as many as, you know, three, four, five times over a period of, of, of several years. Um, that's how consistent they were to these specific areas. So there, were, there was, you know, a good 10 different schools of those bull reds through the, the Mosquito Lagoon area. And then just, you know, several dozen other schools of, of all those different size reds I was talking about. Now, as far as the way we fished for them, it was all sight fishing. You know, we, we, would pull up on either the schools of fish, or we would also fish for, for, for single fish on shorelines or just tailing on, on shallow flats. And everything was sight fishing, whether it was a fly rod or a spin rod, you would, you would see the fish, you would make your cast, whether it was in the morning or, or, or you know, in the evening uh, or in the middle of the day with full sun, the fish were doing the same thing because again, this is a tideless estuary, which is one of the things that made it really special. The fish weren't gonna be in a certain spot on a certain tide, they just did their thing all day long and it created some really spectacular fishing because of that you know you could find a, a a school first thing in the morning and let's say they were in a little deeper water and they were they weren't finning or tailing and they were you know you kind of sneak up on them and then accidentally bump them and they take off throwing a throwing a big wake and you just couldn't get the right shots you could come back later in the day and those fish would be in the same area and you could use sun to then find them flashing or or uh you know 
grouped around doing some kind of different behavior that would give themselves away. So it was really a special fishery for those reasons. You had lots and lots of fish, lots of different sizes of fish that would accommodate any skill level of angler and any, any particular desire to target, whether it was big fish or just slot fish on fly. And you had the ability to target these fish at any time throughout the day, any day of the week, year round. So I didn't know that. That's pretty badass. The whole, was, you know, there's no tide. Who the yeah, was, hell it, knew that? Not me. Full, I was, Billy, I was today years old when I learned that. <laughs> I just, so it's, I don't, I, I don't get to say that very often. So I want to, I want to bask in that for a moment. I was today's years old. You know, you think you yeah. know so much about stuff and then, and then you come up, pop on here, start dropping knowledge. And I kind of forget I'm supposed to ask you questions. Cause I'm sitting there in awe. I'm like, oh, that's cool shit, man. Like, that's awesome. So that's, that's wild. Like it's, it's almost like the land that time forgot just sitting there. The no friggin' tide, the fish, the fish don't leave. It's the only place where redfish don't leave. And you just run around and you catch the same fish like four or five times each year. That's pretty badass. Like, you know, when you think about it, that's a, like a little bit of heaven. Um, what happened? And, and, you know, and, and just and just to touch on the little bit of heaven part, you said there's a lot of beautiful places around the country to fish. Um, the Keys are beautiful. You know, other, other places in the country really have, have, have scenic fisheries. But the lagoon was not just a wonderful fishery. It was beautiful. You had these, these you know, low-lying islands with unique tropical vegetation on them and, and, and you know, big single palm trees were standing up. You had NASA in the in the background that you could see just the the launch pads and the vehicle assembly building, and then the rest of the entire area was all protected. So there was no hotels, there was no houses, there was no docks, there was nothing. It, it's one of the last little bits on the east coast of Florida that's that's undeveloped, both the beach and the in the the lagoon inland of of the beach. There it was truly uh, a spectacular place visually and and otherwise. So. Uh, so, so anyway, as far as what happened, you know, this is a, a, a complicated question that's taken a long time for us to really to wrap our heads around. And a lot of people still have, have different theories and different ideas. Now, I will say that all those theories and ideas, for the most part, are in general looking at some causation that is not wrong. They're not wrong saying that it was a factor, but... Um, a lot of people have, you know, this idea that it was just this or it was just that, or, you know, there, there was, there's all this development or people used outboard motors in the lagoon, or, you know, they restored a few mosquito uh, ditches and impoundments, you know, or the, or the wastewater treatment plants have, have runoff. You know, they, they, they try to blame these, these individual things like it's, you know, or they took all the clams, you know, they, they overfished the clams there. All these things are part of it, but, but not, not a single one of them is the, is the main reason of what's going wrong. And, and unfortunately, not many people understand the whole picture of what happened to the lagoon because it is somewhat complicated. Outside of fishing, I'm, I'm a, a bit of a, of a marine science nerd and uh, I grow coral professionally and I've been a, a professional aquarist for probably close to 15 years as well. So I, I have a bit of an understanding of, of this kind of stuff and it, it really piques curiosity in me. So when things started happening in the lagoon, I wanted to know more than just what I was being told. So I spent a lot of time doing my own research 
and, and thankfully a lot of this is lined up now with what the general consensus is. So to, to, to put this in as simple of a, of a nutshell as I can for you guys and lay the timeline out, um, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that, because this, this is an important point, I feel like a lot of people are, are missing this. I, I, I think that these brown tide algal blooms that we're having in, in the lagoon, there's a, there's a type of algae uh, that's blooming here. It's called uh, Oriumbra lagunensis, which if you translate that from Latin, it stands for uh, the golden shadow from the lagoon. And uh, uh, Oreos, as we know, is, is, uh, is gold. Uh, umbra is shadow or umbrella is where the term umbrella came from. And then uh, lagoon ensis, uh, ensis implies origin. And the spelling in that is, is, is spelled uh, lagoon, which, which is, is different than, uh, than our lagoon, which is L-A-G-O-O-N. That is uh, uh, reminiscent and, and indicative of the lagoon in Texas, which has also experienced algal blooms from these exact same species of, of algae. Uh, which is Laguna Madre. So these, these algal blooms are very much like, likely to be a naturally occurring event. So in Laguna Madre, there's not a lot of development. So we've all seen like the King Ranch Ford trucks and things like that. People m may not know much about King Ranch beyond uh, the fact that there's a, uh, a, a type of truck named after, but it is a place. And on the uh, border of, of, on the west border of Laguna Madre, Texas, there's this massive of ranch that doesn't have a lot of development. It doesn't have septic systems and, and runoff. It's mainly just natural land uh, that's, that's managed for cattle, but it's also managed for exotic animals, uh, axis deer, et cetera, things like that for hunting uh, and white-tailed deer. So there's just not a lot of runoff there. Yet this lagoon down there had this massive problem. And there is also some development, of course, in, in Galveston, et cetera. There's, there is development at some places in Texas, but... There's not like it is here uh, in, in the other parts of the lagoon system here. Mosquito Lagoon is what I was talking about as far as being undeveloped and beautiful. A quick short drive through Hallover Canal, though, into the other sister lagoon, which is right on the other side, just a couple, a mile away even, is uh, the Indian River Lagoon and, and subsequently the Banana River Lagoon to the south. NASA is in the middle of all three of these lagoons, but the other two lagoons are developed all around them. There's houses uh, and things like that. But, but in, point being is in Texas, they didn't have that. So we have these, these, these brown tide blooms uh, in both these lagoons, and, and one of them doesn't have a, a ton of development. So what's, what's the cause of that? Well, you know, I think that with these tideless lagoons, we have large amounts of loading, whether it's just natural or, or driven by, by development around them. Over, over the years, they tend to go through this cycle where they grow large amounts of seagrass and large amounts of macroalgae. And, and when the lagoon is fully lush and, and, and covered in this vegetation, it's primed for something bad to happen. And that event is seemingly triggered by a very cold weather event. This is what initiated the original documented brown tide blooms in Texas. And this is what preceded our brown time, tide blooms here in Florida. So we have this, this very cold weather event. And what that, what that does is it kills the macroalgae. So we have two main types of vegetation that lives in these estuaries. We have seagrass, which is rooted to the bottom. It's a vascular plant. It flowers underwater. It produces seeds. Um, it, it, it's long-lived. It, it, the beds tend to, they lose leaves, but the, the rhizomes, which are the roots of seagrass, tend to live for a long period of time. 
and continue to maintain the perimeter and, and, and size of a, of a grass bed. Macroalgae, on the other hand, especially the most common type, which is drift algae, there's a few different types. Spiridia filamentosa is a big red ball of algae. Uh, Grassillaria is the brown type of this drift algae. So imagine something that looks like a tumbleweed. It can be as, as, as big as a couple feet in diameter. And essentially, it, it drifts across the flats, rolls around with, uh, with wave action because there is no current to push this stuff. And it, it tends to build up in the deeper basins of the lagoon. Even though we couldn't see the bottom most of the time, the water was clear, but it wasn't clear enough to see the bottom in six, eight foot of water. There was enough light there for this, uh, this macroalgae to grow in these deep, deep beds, which were in all the lagoons, deep basins. So the cold weather doesn't necessarily kill seagrass, but it does kill, if it gets cold enough, it kills this macroalgae. So when the macroalgae dies, it's, it's like, think of macroalgae as like kelp is a type of macroalgae. So some people don't visualize macroalgae. It's, it's, it looks like a plant, but it's a type of algae. It doesn't have the same type of, of biological structure and density that vascular plants like seagrass have. So when this macroalgae is killed by, by cold weather, it immediately dissolves and dies in a matter of a couple of days. And it releases a huge flux of, of nitrogen and phosphorus into the water column. In addition to that, the cold weather also causes a clearing of the water. I haven't fished much in the Northeast, but I, I'm, I'm guessing that in some of the areas up there, when, when the weather gets cold, the water probably gets clearer. And uh, the same thing happens here. The, the clearing of the water is because the plankton that lives in the water, some of it can't really withstand colder weather. And typically it gets beat back a little bit. And then once it warms up, it, it'll bloom again. You have this natural planktonic soup, both of, of uh, phytoplankton and of zooplankton. Well, the same cold weather events that killed the macroalgae did a real number on the, on the planktonic community as well. And it caused an imbalance in the planktonic community. So you lose a lot of the natural grazers uh, that, are, that are zooplanktons that live within the planktonic community. And you just lose a, a balance of the natural types of plankton that existed prior to uh, this umbra starting to bloom. Also beyond that, a lot of, of other fish are very sensitive to, to cold snook, um, sea trout. I know you sea trout live all the way from Chesapeake, et cetera, but juvenile sea trout do well in, in cold weather and sea trout that can find deep water do well. Big gator trout, which the lagoon, in addition to redfish, was known for some of the largest trout in the world. The record actually comes from the Indian River Lagoon. Um, those big trout, when they get shallow water, they do not do well when the, when the water gets real cold. If it gets down near, uh, you know, below 40 degrees, we start to get freezes and that water gets really cold. Uh, the, the trout, they, they don't just kick up dead like a snook does from cold shock. It, it, it weakens their immune system and uh, they, they kind of look like zombies for a few days and then they die. But, you know, we lost a large amount of fish. So we lost the macroalgae. We had a, a loss of the, the plankton, which, which, of course, released a bunch of nutrients as well and created an imbalance within that community. And we lost a large amount of fish. So when all this, these, these, these fish and, and, plant, and plankton animals died, uh, it, it created this, this prime situation for an algal bloom to occur. So the next, the next step was... The weather got warmer. This happened for, for the first time in 2011 and then again in 2012, and it's been repetitive ever since then. So the, the weather got warmer, and uh, there, was, there was just enough nutrients in, in the water column for, for bad actor plankton, such as Oriumbra. Uh, and, and that initial bloom was actually not Oriumbra. It was a different kind of algae called uh, pyridinium. And uh, 
picocyanobacteria, which is not the same toxic blue-green algae that they get in some lakes and down in South Florida from Lake Okeechobee. But uh, nonetheless, there was there was the water was kind of green the first year, and that that began the process of killing the seagrass. Now, as as the seagrass died off, that released more nutrients into the water column, which changed the chemistry of the water and allowed uh, even more aggressive types of, of of planktonic algal blooms to occur, which is when the Oriumbra started blooming in 2012, and it it just kind of created a negative feedback loop. The the more seagrass died off the denser the uh, Oriumbra umber blooms got and the longer lasting they were from just being over a period of, of uh, a few months during the warmest months of the year and then during winter would clear up. By about 2014, 2015, we started to have, have you know, year-round algal blooms in parts of the system. So it, it continued on each year. It ate away at the grass beds and, and it, it killed grass in, in shallower and shallower water as the blooms got denser and denser. And we had a, a terrible fish kill in a part of the system in 2016 down in the Nana River Lagoon. Uh, the, the, the algae got so dense that it actually starved itself out. Um, and when the algae died off, the, the bacteria that live in the water column and on the bottom uh, are their aerobic bacteria. There's two types of bacteria. There's anaerobic bacteria and aerobic bacteria. The aerobic bacteria consumed the the dying algal cells. And the reason it's called aerobic bacteria is because it utilizes oxygen through its process of, of uh, you know, biological function. That zaps the water column of oxygen that created a hypoxic environment and uh, a large die-off of fish. Beyond that, we continue to have algal blooms pretty much every year up until, uh, uh, even even until now, but they've, they've gotten more patchy now. And I think we, we may be kind of on the, uh, on the other end of that. Uh, but I'll, I'll kind of go into the next phase of it uh, here in a moment. So all of that said, simple, just a yes or a no, can it be saved? In your heart, in your heart, in your heart, do you think you can turn it around? Yes. In your lifetime? Absolutely. Yes. Now, see, that's why we do it. Because, you you know, we have a dead zone that goes 90 miles in the Chesapeake Bay from about 20 feet out on the western side to about 40, 50 feet. And then when the wind blows, it blows it over to my side on the east side. By the way, do you know who had the world's record trout before you all did? Uh in your in your lagoon system i'll give you no a i can't say i do tangier sound chesapeake bay baby we had the we had the weak fish and the speckled trout both over 16 pounds uh wow. for for decades we we had those I, I cannot tell you how good the speckled trout fishing is here we hadn't had a cold stun event uh probably in like five or six years and you know they grow really fast and I know, I know some people, you know, look down on specs, whatever. Some people love them, but um, they're they're pretty smart around here. They're they're not the easy fish to catch. If they hear you, you're done. Um, just go to go to the next shoreline, and and they've they've actually had some size on them. They've all been real healthy, big big football fish. Um, so that's been cool for us. We we're getting 
uh, granddaddy size redfish here. Um, last year we had a ton of red drum that were real small, like 12 to 18 inches. Uh, looked like two year classes to me. And they didn't show up in the same numbers we had them last year, which was super disappointing. Um, but it's weird here in the Bay, like things are changing. We can see it because I think it is tidal. We're starting to get, you know, weird, weird fish that, that we can actually target and fish for that we never had before. Um, but that's probably a whole other, a whole other podcast. So I think, you know, I think stuff is changing everywhere and, and, you know, we've heard about the pollution, um, a big story with us, Billy and stripers is, is management, right? So I'm talking about interstate, intrastate, you know, we deal, we deal with the whole coast, right? Everyone gets a vote from North Carolina to Maine for striped bass. So it's like, it's pretty crazy kind of how, how we have to be advocates for it. The state really manages the red drum in your area in Florida, right? Within, within three miles. So now you said personally, you haven't kept a redfish in a month of Sundays, you know, over a decade. It's been since yeah. you, if I remember, if I recall correctly. Correct. That seems to be the way the trend is going with red drum is more more and more people are seeing the value uh in releasing them except as a side note may i mention where i live on the chesapeake where uh some some folks from some facets rather of the charter for hire fleet have figured out how to catch big red drum a couple of months out of the year trolling and they want to kill them um they're actually starting rumors in the state to kill to let us at least keep one big one so our clients can take home some meat that's that's already started you know because because when something news around and it's really awesome and it's this incredible fish and you could you can enjoy it why not fucking kill it right i mean that makes sense to me so um you know this is the kind of stuff that we deal with where i am so state management of red drum in florida what are you seeing are there any shortfalls as far as you know the things that managers can control like creel limit size limit uh bag limit season um you know i i, I think that right now because of the issues are their hand with the decline to the estuary and, and the other estuaries around the state that they need to do what they can to reduce the uh the negative impact of angling on the existing fish that are in the water you know they have a lot of pressure from habitat loss they have a lot of pressure from poor water quality you know some of the the hypoxic stuff we we had mentioned uh that caused some of the fish kills before every day in the you know lagoon system during these these you know really dense algal blooms first thing in the morning it's almost a fish kill every single day. Now, a large fish can be sedentary and survive that and then do most of its hunting later in the day when, when the algae in the water begins to photosynthesize, just like a tree on land, the algae in the water produces oxygen and the system is, it's, it's like a roller coaster of an oxygen cycle. Rather than being nice and flat where you have 
steady oxygen levels, uh, you know, 24 hours a day. You have almost a fish kill every single morning. And then you have super saturated, beyond normal levels of oxygen later in the afternoon. So now is that is that like a casino where they pump oxygen in and the fish are like jacked up and ready to go at like four o'clock? Like, let them ride, put it all on black or is it like not that kind of good over oxygen? So it, it, it's, it's kind of, uh, yes, the fish do feed more later in the day sometimes because of this uh, exacerbated oxygen cycle. But simultaneously, the darker colored water makes the water much hotter than it would normally be, sometimes in the, yeah. in the low 90s, even even close yeah. to the mid-90s. So the fish have this, this terrible choice of they have to feed during that time frame. But even though that's when the, when the oxygen levels are at the highest, they're still low, comparatively speaking because warmer water holds less dissolved oxygen than, than cooler water. So uh, that's a terrible position for the fish to be in. They don't have a choice. And, and uh, you know, what, what I was getting at with all that is that while the adult fish can survive that, juvenile fish, because redfish do spawn in the estuary, sea trout, of course, spawn in the estuary, all the other fish that live in the system, um, these juvenile fish are, especially before they're settled. So when these things are little larval fish that they're clear elongated whatever they don't look like a uh, a redfish or like a trout they just look like a little some kind of a little you know you could tell it's a fish but you have no idea what species it is yet that that animal is much more sensitive to uh uh to uh you know it's much more sensitive to things like water quality and oxygen cycles and things of that nature so it could be impacting how many juvenile fish even though even if the fish have a successful spawn it could be impacting how many juvenile fish are able to to settle within the system and, and, and grow to a larger size and also without the seagrass in the system these juvenile fish have no habitat to hide in so fish like pinfish and pigfish they are tremendous predators of juvenile cyanidae species and without seagrass to hide in these little fish have absolutely nowhere to go and so not only not only is the uh, the water quality impacting how these juvenile fish are are able to to grow, but whether they're even able to survive because of the habitat loss and everything else. So there's there's tremendous stress beyond just what the adult fish endure. There's a tremendous level of stress, even more so for the juvenile fish, to be able to to grow even to adult fish in the first place. So as far as state management comes in, you know we. There, there's two sides to that, you know, obviously there's the, uh, the management of the pollution stuff, which is not in the wheelhouse of the uh, fisheries management type organization, such as FWC, but within their, you know, realm of what they're capable of, of, of controlling, they need to focus on reducing damage to the estuary beyond, you know, what it already is. And, and I feel that, Stopping the harvest to some fish in some areas is is very sound management. They've already done it uh, on the West Coast. They've had red tides over there, very bad ones, and in, in, in Charlotte from Charlotte Harbor all the way up through Tampa Bay. They had a, a closure over there. They just opened it back up, and then bam, we have another terrible red tide over there that kills a bunch of fish. So they they close that again, which is it's the right move. Uh, so I don't want to criticize that as being the wrong move. But here's the difference between what we have over here and what they have over there. They have a red tide. It kills a lot of fish. 
it's terrible, but the habitat remains untouched. The, the, the seagrass survives. Um, the, the base of the habitat is there and the, the fishery is able to, to more rapidly recover from a red tide than it is from these, these brown tides that we have uh, on the east coast of Florida in, the, in this lagoon system. Because even when the, when the algal bloom subsides for a few months during the winter, the habitat's gone and it doesn't just grow back right away. So between these blooms, well, we haven't had a, a you know, repetitively shocking fish kills like they do over there. We have had a tremendous, we did have a fish kill, a big one, and we have had other smaller fish kills. And we've had a decline of fish over a period of, of 10 years now because of this loss of the habitat. But yet these fisheries managers are, managers are, are reluctant to act on this. And they know that this is happening, but there, there, there comes this, this culpability that these government agencies don't want to bestow upon their, their brethren within the government. Of, of mismanagement of the fishery because if they if they you know they can blame the red tide on being a naturally occurring event and just like as I mentioned with the Oromba which I'll circle back to when we have a moment later on uh, red tides are naturally occurring so is Oromba these brown tides but the difference is is that you know the, the the brown tide here while it's it's a naturally occurring event is so so long term events that take a decade or more for this whole cycle seeming seemingly to play out and I'll, I'll explain more about that later on when we have a little bit more time to talk about uh some of the cycle but ba back to the fisheries management thing the uh the state doesn't want to say you know because of municipalities and because of other things this this has been such a long prolonged event and so so intense they just kind of ignore it they've, they've really ignored this as being a, a you know a negative thing for the fishery and it's really tragic to see that. And, and there's, there's another factor that plays into the fishery here in the lagoon system and whether or not it's appropriate to eat these fish. And that has to do with the, the military and, and, and government development around the lagoon system. NASA being right in the middle of the lagoon system has 260 some sites of, of chemical pollution, including a couple of Superfund sites. Um, Patrick Air Force Base, or excuse me, Patrick Space Force Base, which is down uh, a little bit lower in, on Banana River, has a tremendous amount of chemical pollution as well. And this this has definitely been, you know, working its way through the ecosystem. They found it in in mullet at the highest levels that they've ever recorded. These hey, Billy, I bet mullet. you, I bet you the PFAS, the PAFS stuff. Yeah, that, oh, yeah. That those legacy anywhere near, anywhere near. An air, an, a military airbase, NASA, anything that uses that foam, um, that stuff is bad news. And uh, yeah, and it's it's all over the Chesapeake Bay. It's all over, with all the military installations. Right? Oh my gosh, it's all over the place. It, it, people question, well, what does you know? Everything causes cancer. Well, look at Camp Lejeune, the Marine base. You know, there's lots of people that got cancer from from these flame retardants. So yes, there those 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 flame retardants, PFOAs, PFOS, that stuff has been found in in higher levels in the mullet and in the alligators here than they found in anywhere. I'm not sure where else it would even be in those those organisms. Perhaps uh, you know up north, I guess you guys have mullet up there as well, and some other places. But they found it in higher levels in these things, and that's that's the bottom of the food chain and the top of the food chain. So you have you know a, a bait fish that everything else is eating that has this stuff in it. 
They've also found it in the sharks and the rays in the lagoon system and open water, which of course are, are also on the top of the food chain. So it's if it's in the sharks and the rays and the alligators, it's in the redfish, it's in the sea trout, it's in the other fish that people are eating. Um, and especially when you have an animal like a redfish that takes a long time to get big, they have a long, and they eat a lot of food, they have a long time to bioaccumulate these these pollutants. And it, it's not just the, the flame retardants that, that they found in these in these fish. There's, there's another pretty gnarly chemical that, that you just don't want to have exposure to um, that's polluted around NASA quite a bit. It's called trichloroethylene. Trike is the, the, the slang term for it. There's a super fun site called uh, uh, Wilson Corners that's right in the middle of the refuge right there, just north of NASA, that has a huge plume that's underground. They won't even draw drinking water uh, for, the, for, the, for the refuge visitor center from the ground or, or any water from, from, the, from the ground there. They pipe it all the way in from, from either from NASA or Titus, from one of the two, because, uh, and either one of them is coming from the mainland side, because NASA is not drawing groundwater either because of the, of the chemical plumes out there. But they, they have, you know, all this pollution out there. And while it hasn't destroyed the ecosystem as far as it surviving, it's, these pollutants I'm talking about are not related to the brown tide, but they are in the, in the animals. So when you're talking about fisheries management, there's multiple reasons beyond an, an ecosystem collapse to not consume these fish. I wouldn't eat a fish, any fish out of the lagoon. Um, even species of fish I eat like triple tail, I would not eat a triple tail out of the lagoon uh, just because I know what's in there and I know that it's potentially dangerous and I know the reasons why it's potentially dangerous to uh, to consume those fish. But the, the state is not going to, to admit this, even though there's been studies that suggest it and NASA knows it, these people know it, they're not going to admit that because again, that you know, if they admit that there's that there's the fish have these toxic chemicals and you shouldn't eat them, you have decades of people that have eaten these fish, they're opening the door for all kinds of of of, of lawsuits. Um, so the state's never going to admit that. Um, but there's you know, to 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 the self-educated, people are beginning to know that there's problems, and it's even beyond the toxic chemicals, all the human wastewater pollution and other stuff that's ended up here in the lagoon. Um, and, and, and fertilizer runoff and just stormwater runoff in general, because it's non-tidal, it's like a lake. Everything that comes into the lagoon here, uh, it stays there and it builds up as evaporation takes place. The freshwater evaporates off and everything that got washed into the lagoon stays behind and ends up in the fish and, and other organisms in the system. So there's multiple reasons why the fish shouldn't be eaten, but be, beyond that, uh, on, on a statewide level, a fish like redfish, it just has a much, higher value to our economy, to our fisheries, to the state in general, uh, alive than it, than it does dead. With the amount of, of people coming here and, and, and the amount of water that we have here to fish compared to places like Louisiana, where you have a giant marsh and not a lot of people, uh, you know, the angling pressure coupled with the, the, the volume of water and, and the tight amount of space that people have to fish in here, relatively speaking, compared to larger estuaries, today, we don't have as much water you know, for the fish to, to, to be in here. And we have a lot more pressure. There's so many people moving to Florida and fishing in Florida. And if we want to maintain a high quality angling experience for everybody, we really should look at some species as being better as a, as a fish to, to be, you know, sport fish for versus uh, table fare. Cause there's plenty of other fish to eat, whether it's, you know, mangrove snapper or sheep's head flounders, et cetera. Uh, there's a lot of fish that aren't targeted with the same 
amount of vigor as redfish. So, you know, if, if the fish could be, you know, viewed as, as, as more of a catch and release species, I think that it would be better for our fisheries overall, economically and experience wise, because people have, you know, they go fishing, of course, some people subsistence fishing and they go to fish for just stuff that they're going to eat. But the majority of people are, are out there because they want to catch a big fish and, you know, if they can bring it home, that's, that's great and all, but with, uh, with redfish in Florida, for a number of reasons, they seem that they would be better off as a, as a catch and release species. And it may not be the same case in every fishery, but as, as pressure increases and things change, anglers in these fisheries may find themselves feeling the same way about, about their redfish population and perhaps targeting other fish that are, are more suited to be table fare than redfish. Redfish take a long time to get big. They really don't taste that great compared to a lot of species, at least that I prefer to eat. And, and you know, beyond that, they just economically, just like a tarpon or bonefish, and granted, you can't eat those, eat those fish, even a permit, you can't eat permit, but they, they just are, are better, better eating overall uh, than, than some other fish. They just are more valuable alive than dead for, for the fisheries. So hopefully people will see that. You know, FWC has has already stated that the escapement rate for redfish in the Southeast region of Florida is below the levels that they want it to be. So we have a year round limit of one redfish per person per day. Um, so where do you go from there? Do you have a season? Do you tighten the slot? Do you, you know, have a moratorium on harvest? I, I think that one of the primary reasons for their, their, their low escapement rate here in, you know, in this part of Florida is due to the fact that the habitat has been so degraded and FWC needs to, to admit that. They don't have to point the finger at themselves or some other state injury, uh, agency, excuse me. They need to address that though. And until they can, can see some type of recovery uh, within the estuary ecologically, if they can close something because of red tide, they can close it because of brown tide and they just need to monitor it. When, and, and when and if a time comes, that it's that it's more appropriate to open the fishery back up, then then do so. People say, oh, once they close these things, they they never open them back up. Well, they've proven that they do uh, with the West Coast, you know, red tide related closures. They close them and they open them after a few years of monitoring. They need to implement the same thing here at a minimum until they see a recovery of the habitat and until they see levels of escapement, which is how they you know they judge the the amount of redfish getting away that are within the slot size until that level of escapement um, is sufficient, they really need to be more proactive with their management. It seems like they, between public pressure and the science, they really have nowhere to go but that direction, but we'll see what they do. Hopefully they'll make some wise decisions and, and you know, factor in all things that are at play, whether it's pollution, habitat destruction, increased angling pressure. You know, we've all seen it post COVID we've had a tremendous increase of, of people fishing and utilizing the outdoors in general. So is that going to change? Are people going to go back to whatever they did before COVID? I don't know. I don't think so. I think that it's created a, a change within our society where people feel that they, they're going to have, you know, a better time outdoors because they understand it more since they were forced into it by these, these, you know, lockdowns and closures of other, other activities they wanted. So the state needs to factor in all that stuff and, and really determine what's going to offer the best path forward to appropriate management for not just for redfish, but for all different fish species of Florida.
Yeah, and Billy, I, I'd love to hop in here and, um, you know, I, I think you're, you're spot on there. And I think what we talked about uh, briefly before the podcast, right, is there's kind of two levels to this, which is these actual management. So what is in place and then what is legally allowed as far as, um, you know, catch and release or, or uh, harvest. And also what the, what the culture itself is driving. So what the recreational culture is driving. And, um, you know, I think, there's been a lot of cases, some a little bit more notable than others in the in the digital world that have gone around that challenge the rec industry this year about just because something is legal someplace, is it ethical? You know, if if the, you know, certain parties that be would allow, uh, I think a great comment uh, on the discussion between international harvest, well, was this treatment of this fish okay because it was in international water versus how does it influence people to behave here? Someone said, well, if kissing your cousin was legal, if kissing your sister was legal, would you do it, right? So just because taking something um, is legal doesn't mean it's the right thing to do right now. And so I'd love to hear you discuss a a little bit around the culture of catch and release. I think we're seeing more of a push for it. And I think there's there's a way that we can drive the culture of rec anglers and of how you just referenced. I mean, license sales right through the roof. I'm pretty sure boat sales were the biggest on, on record uh, this past year. More and more people are getting outside. And so with all these new people entering the fishery, you have new students of the game who want to learn from someone like yourself, who is a multi-decade guide and knows the ins and outs of their area. And it's, it's their first time stepping out in mosquito lagoon, whether it's on a paddleboard, a kayak from shore or a $70,000 skiff, right? There's all sorts of parties to be. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, um, I guess the culture behind, um, conservation, how we can promote through to the right people that just because something is legal, it might not be, you know, the best thing or that, how we can drive a little bit of a tangible shift in, in that realm. Now, I want to interject for one second, because y'all are both in Florida right now. And you're talking about, you know, I guess for a long time, a voluntary movement, you know, to keep less redfish, to protect the resource. You have all these external factors that are causing the population to shrink. And, you know, it's kind of like a where do we go from here thing. All right, striped bass, coastal population, is at a 25-year low. We're at the same level as we were in 1995, and that's based on data from 2017. I can promise you we're significantly below where it was. Since the mid-'80s, striped bass anglers have chosen to throw back about 90% of the fish that they catch. 90% are released. Constant since the, since the mid eighties, constant. Doesn't matter how many anglers are, what the effort was, how many trips were taken, how many new anglers in the system, constant. <clears throat> it actually rose last year. I think it was 93, 94%. Do you want to know what managers are discussing right now? Passing non-targeting regulations. If I am fishing a mixed school of bluefish and stripers, I'm not allowed to do that. How do you survive as a guide when one stretch of shoreline could have summer flounder, red drum, speckled trout, striped bass, Spanish mackerel out in deeper water, bluefish, one shoreline? 
they're proposing non-targeting times. Do you want to know why? Because there's a mortality associated with striped bass, 9%. That says 9, 9% if you catch 100 fish, 9 of them are dead if you release all 100. So they want to lower that release mortality number so they can continue to harvest at unsustainable levels. They're not doing it for conservation. They're doing it to maintain unsustainable levels of harvest. So I hope that made you both feel better for whatever you're dealing with in Florida, because when you think it could get worse, just think of what I just told you, that they're actually saying, no, 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 catch and release is the problem. You got to cut that crazy shit out. And we just want you to go out and kill your fish and come home. Or we're just, you just can't go out at all. We'll let you know when. Yeah, yeah it's pretty bizarre. So unfortunate to see restrictions like that when, you know, fishing is a blood sport. And yes, some fish, no matter what you try to do when you release them, die. But if you become adept in the process of handling these fish and how to release them most fish do very well even when you look at fish like uh you know bonefish and and, and and tarpon and more sensitive species people have figured out the way that they have to handle these fish to have you know successful releases with them keeping them in the water holding them over the water versus pulling them under the boat etc people who care about catch and release or are, are oh hey know. billy let's be honest man redfish are bulletproof yes, i mean that's are. a tough, tough that is a tough fish man just you know I'm not suggesting you punch them in the stomach before you before you let them go, but in comparison to some of the some of the other fish that you uh, you, you don't you don't have to be a scientist to release one uh, and expect are, to live. Are, are striped bass pretty resilient as well? I've never actually fished for them. There, I wouldn't. So okay, I'm fortunate enough to years ago there was a lot more stripers than there were red drum. <laughs> now I cannot say the same thing. I've caught my share. I haven't caught as many as you have. Red drum are way tougher than on release than a striped bass. The bigger a striped bass gets, the less surface area it has in relation to body size to to the gill breakers. You know, just when it's a twelve inch fish, there's it's easier for them to oxygenate themselves than when it's a fifty inch fish. There's been no research. That's totally anecdotal. I, I would put them like I would I, if I had to do like fish toughness. And granted, I have seen like a red drum swim by that was bitten in half by a shark and had scarred over. And you're like, my God, I, I you're you're a tough son of a bitch. <laughs> like that's all I'm gonna say about you. So like I would put it like red drum, snook stripers bonefish they're, they're right in the middle they're right in the middle area if it's super hot outside you probably shouldn't be fishing for them you know if it's 100 sure. degrees and 90 degree water go fish for something else right yeah so yeah so you know what cody had asked a couple of moments ago as far as the the cultural shift that's taking place within our fisheries it's it's a positive thing and and you know, 10 years ago, even when all this started happening, which we, a lot of us were still talking about catch and release back then, because there was a lot more fish harvesting happening um, in the lagoon system, at least back then. 
but culturally a lot of the younger generation of anglers which there's more young guys fishing now at a very highly skilled level than there probably has ever been before social media and uh the fact that it's cool to fish now like when i when i was young and i fished it was i just grew up fishing and it was what i did but like my buddies in high school made fun of me for like i want to catch one on fly like they made fun of me for fly fishing and like now like these high school kids is like they're not cool if they don't fly fish which it's great i'm not knocking on one type of fish or another just using it as an example there's been a big change in in uh, the perspectives of fishing and a lot of that has to do with uh with social media and the ability to showcase your angling ability to a very wide audience which does have negative uh negative things involved with it as well but on the positive side of that a lot of the younger generation of kids they understand at least the ones that fish for redfish especially they understand that these fish are probably better left alive than 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 killed um and if you if you post a bunch of dead redfish you know on the internet you're going to get shamed for it probably in most places or if you mishandle a, a redfish you're going to get shame for it. If you vertically hold a redfish, especially a big one, and you post it on social media, doesn't matter what part of the country you're from, you're not going to escape that post without people criticizing you for handling that fish inappropriately. So, you know, all those things have kind of have come into play and, and they are changing things, which is great. But the guys that are good at fishing, especially these younger guys, they're not the ones that are still killing these fish, uh, and unfortunately taking taking fish that shouldn't be taken it's it's a lot of amateur fishermen that that especially you know guys middle age that that want to get involved in fishing and they you know they get that first redfish and they think oh i gotta bring it home you know it's some kind of a of a trophy thing for them to to, to have it and, and and kill it and eat it and all that stuff they they haven't grown an appreciation yet for for the fish itself so I, I or nor have they seen the challenges that these fish face in their in their habitat so because of the lack of understanding and the newness of it they they still have a desire to harvest the fish and there, there's people that are just going to kill fish because they just don't care otherwise especially big red fish you know when you were mentioning to me earlier about the guys that are you know figured out how to catch some of these fish a different way up there and you know they want to keep them for their clients it doesn't register to these guys that a redfish that's that's 45 inches long is probably 20 to 30 years old. You know, oh. it takes a long time for that fish to get big. It doesn't I, like Billy, a, 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 a cobia grows that fast in two, two and a half years. Yeah, I got to send you an article. I think it was from the Orlando Sentinel a couple years back. They recaptured a redfish and the tag was so old, it was pre-computer. And... It was one, one of these crazy things. So, so the kid who worked for FWC, his father tagged the redfish. 28 years. 28 yeah. years. And his father, when he, when he retired from FWC, he kept all his files in the basement, all his paper files. So he looked up. I'm not kidding. I will send you the article. He looked up. The fish was tagged 28 years. Was tagged when it was 28 inches. It was 36 inches. Yeah, some of them grow slower and some of them grow faster. I think the, the, the size and the rate of growth of redfish is directly proportional 
to blue crabs, just like palola worms are really important for tarpon. I think blue crabs are especially important for redfish. The, the places with the largest redfish in the world, whether it be Pamlico and Chesapeake, uh, the, the Indian River Lagoon system, you know, Louisiana, they all have something in common and that's a lot of blue crabs. So, so anyway, you know, it, it, they do grow at different rates though. And uh, it, at the very fastest rate, it seems that they grow. Once they get to about 28 inches long, it's only about one inch per year or less. So, you know, when, when these guys catch these big fish, it just kills me to see them being mishandled because they have no idea how old that fish is. It could be 30, 40 years old. And they just, you have to respect something that lives that long in a place oh, where sharks are trying to eat it every day. It's, like a, and, it's literally a bag of meat swimming around. And the same thing with stripers. You got seals, you got sharks, you got everything with teeth, you know, every through all the stages of its life. And you're sitting there holding a 50 pound fish, be it a red drum or a striper. And you know that fish is 40, 50 years old. And you're like, how did you do it? Like, how did you, you know, how did you make it this long in such a violent ecosystem where it's every day is kill or be killed? And you made it, and like, to again, not to, like you said, not to treat it with respect when you catch it, it's kind of shocking, you know? And, and even if you, even if you are harvesting a fish, if I go on a catch, let's say a triple tail or a cobia, and I'm going to harvest that fish. I treat it with respect too by getting it into ice. You know, not I'm not just grabbing it by the eyeballs or whatever. I don't want to 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 you know inflict pain to the fish. Not that you're killing it anyway. I understand, but there's just a, no reason to be absolutely disrespectful to to any fish. So if you're going to kill it, kill it quick. If you're going to release it, handle it with the utmost care and turn and it loose. Man, you know. It's it's not different than deer hunting, right? If you if a buck of a lifetime walks up and it doesn't give you a shot and you're bow hunting and 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 you know in your heart it's not a clean shot, as hard as it is, you put your bow down, you know, yep. and, and you, you don't take that shitty shot. And it, it's the same with fishing, you know, like yeah, it's a blood sport. You kill stuff. Uh welcome welcome to what we do every day but there's also something there that you know you're not you're not gonna you're just gonna treat it the right way whether whether you harvest yep. it or you release it you just got to be responsible and i think you know a, a lot of people don't put into perspective billy brought up the first detail which is um if if you're not as scientifically informed uh, around the fish that you're after, um, and or you're newer to the sport and just haven't had the time to, or the resources, uh, the appropriate resources consumed to pick up this information, you might not know how old this fish is. Which one builds a certain sense of respect towards the fact that, especially being a, a younger, upcoming angler, right? I've caught fish that are highly likely older than me. I've been on this earth longer than me, so the, a decision that I could make within a couple minutes, that's a for pleasure uh, event um, to be able to take that fish off the planet is a very, I think, more powerful thing than, than most people understand. And then also on the back end, referencing specifically maintaining really healthy stocks or stocks that are struggling already in an unhealthy ecosystem is the fecundity of these fish, right? The fact that we just referenced a, a redfish could be 25, 30 plus years old, and there's record of 
those breeding females at that age being able to produce anywhere from hundreds of thousands to millions of eggs per single breeding cycle. So if your fish are struggling and their ecosystem is already struggling and the rate at which an, a laid egg makes it way all the way through to a, an overslot fish, like Billy talked about, the escapement rate, the percentage at which those fish can get from being an egg all the way through to an overslot fish. Um, if that those numbers are already low and you're playing a, a probability game, a casino on the water, why would you take out any sort of big fish that could give you millions more of eggs, which just increases whatever the total number is. It's very, very small relative to those millions. It's not a million eggs to a million fish. It's probably not a million eggs even to a hundred fish per, per um, you know, breeding cycle. But to take a handful of those fish out, whether it's too long for a photo or it's, a, it's a, you know, an illegal harvest, depending on the slot limit or um, mishandling, whatever it may be, those fish are really, really important to sustaining the ecosystem as a whole. And I don't think that's something that really comes into perspective, especially for a new angler who just stuck a 38-inch bull on top water and they are in their high glory. That is the best moment of their week, their month, their year, you know. I don't think all that depth is going through. And so I think that's something that's really important. But, you is, know, Cody, it, what a unique position that we're all in because you're the guide and what a teaching moment. Mm -hmm. Well, so for all the know, clients, Steve, like, what an incredible teaching moment when they're all jacked up and they're like, oh my God, I got to take it home. I got to cook it for everyone. Give it to my neighbors. And you're like, no, 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 you're not. Here's the deal. <laughs> you draw, I mean, and they listen to you because you're the guy. So I, I, I set all that up. You know, to, that's a good point, and the, the springboard off that. I, I, I set, I set my trip up so that my clients understand from the get go that we're not going to be keeping any any of these fish. That they're that they're catch and release only fish, and uh, I rarely, if ever, get anybody that declines to want to fish with me. Most people probably find me because they want to fish with me to target, you know, these big fish of a lifetime size redfish. And, you know, we're talking about how important these big fish are and how important they are to breeding and all that stuff. And, and you know, I specialize in catching big bull redfish. That's my entire business. Uh, I love them. They, they mean the world to me. And they're the basis of what I do every day on the water. Now, people criticize that and say, well, why are you catching all the big reds? And, and you know, you're, you know, you shouldn't fish for them, you know, because, they are, you know, they're, they're big and they're old and, and uh, they're breeder size fish. Well, you know, if we weren't just because bull reds are breeder size. If we, if we weren't to fish for any fish that are breeding fish, we wouldn't fish for sea trout over 20 inches. We wouldn't fish for snook over approximately the same size. We wouldn't fish for adult tarpon. We would fish for a bunch of fish that were all 20 inches or less, which has its own problems too. You know, a lot of those smaller fish are, are, injured from fishing as well and they never get a chance to grow up and be you know big adult fish so you know i i look at it this way if you're going to fish for these fish you got to do it right and you got to have you know the right respect for them and I, I set everything up with my clients so that they understand that the fish is the priority you know they might be the clients and they're paying me for a charter and my focus is on making sure that they have a good time but from the minute that that fish is hooked to the minute it goes back into the water the fish is my priority, not the client. The fish's well-being is my priority. They're going to land. I'm not going to let them fight that fish for 25 minutes like I see some of these people do because they're not using the right tackle or they're not using the right technique and watch it die of exhaustion or get sharked 
or have something else happen to it before we even get it to the boat. We literally land redfish as big as 45 plus inches in two minutes or less. Literally, we, we are right on them, right tackle. And I'm not using giant, super beefy tackle. It's just the right technique and making sure people are fighting it the right way. Uh, coach them through the process and we get the, we get the fish in. So as soon as the fish is boat side, going into like management practices, like best management practice as far as us as, as guides, how do we handle these catch and release fish? And you were talking about the gill area of the, uh, of what your perception is of the, of the striped bass. You know, with a redfish or any other fish, I feel that it's really important that you give it a, a moment, if it's a catch and release fish, to catch its breath. So many people, they get that fish to the boat, the fish is absolutely exhausted at that point, even if you land it really quickly, especially if the water's hot, and they grab the thing or net the thing, and they pull it out of the water, and there it lays in the deck, gasping for oxygen while they unhook it, and then they get a photo, and then they get it back in the water, and maybe it swims off if it's tough enough, maybe it doesn't survive though. When we land a fish on my boat, it stays in the water for at least 30 seconds to a minute before I pull it out to land it. Now, a lot of times I'll use a boger grip to keep the fish next to the boat. I'm not lifting the fish by the boger grip. I just think it can breathe easier by holding it boat side with a lip gripping tool than it can with my hand in its gills, especially if there's current. You can't really just hold the fish into the current, whereas with a a, a lip grip tool, you can hold the fish into the current. It can open and close its mouth freely. It can catch its breath. And uh, I give it a, a good 30 seconds to a minute. I'll pass the boger grip off to a client and then I'll grab the fish by the tail and the belly and I'll, I'll just tell them to not lift with, with the boger grip, but just follow me with the boger grip. And as soon as I have the fish up, I tell them to unclip the boger grip and take it off the fish. I, I set the fish down. I'll already have the client in position. If, if, if I have multiple people on the boat, I'll have the person who caught the fish sitting there ready to take the photo. I'll have another angler helping me with the process I just mentioned to you guys as far as getting the fish into the boat. I'll lay the fish down, measure it for them so they have an idea of how big this fish is. And then I already have the towel there. My phone is turned on with the camera on. Before I even land the fish, I have the camera open on my phone and it's sitting there. I put the fish in their lap. I get it positioned just right for, the, for a great photo. I take a quick, when I say 10 or 15 photos, I'm just hitting the button, you know, doo, 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 or one, one after another, get a bunch of photos. And then I grab the fish and it goes back into the water and it's gone. I try to unhook the fish in the water before I even take the fish out of the water. So everything is minimized. So I, I only have the fish on the deck for maybe 30 seconds at most. And the fish there is, I always tell my clients this, I say, if you have to revive the fish, you've already mishandled it. I put the fish in the water and if they want to get, you know, get a video of them releasing the fish or something, it's not a matter of, okay, you know, swishing back and forth to get him to take off. Uh, you know, so he starts swimming in, it's here, hold on to him tight because he's already ready to go and I'll get a video of you releasing him. But a lot of times we put the fish back in the water and the clients don't care about that. The moment that a fish hits the water, it takes two to three seconds for it to orient itself and realize I'm in the water, I'm up and down and then it wants to go. And I, I, I don't like when people are doing the release thing either and they, they hold the fish for like, you know, for this long 30 second video where they're talking about how great it is and the thing's thrashing around in their hand. When the fish is ready to go, dude, just let go of it. Don't sit there and hold the thing forever. Just put it in the water and turn it loose. Um, you know, and, and if it, like I said, if a client wants to get one of those videos, it's not a drawn out process. I grab the phone, pass the fish off, get a quick video, and it's gone. We're not going to sit there and hold it for a tremendous period of time to release it. But but anyway, the biggest the biggest takeaway on that is that 
giving the fish that 30 seconds to a minute to catch its breath, whether you net it, whether you use a boga grip, whether you use a sling, whatever you're doing to land the fish, even if you're grabbing it by the gills, uh, you know, with, with your hand through, through its, through its uh, gill plate, just whatever you're doing, however you're doing it, if you give that fish a period of time in the water to catch its breath for a couple of moments before you pull it out and photograph it, you're going to have a much, much higher success rate and release, especially if the water's warm. So, you know, I, I've tried to do my best to enact change here in the local fishery by, by leading by example. I, you know, a lot of the young guys, uh, I'm not trying to be bragging here in any way, shape or form, but they do kind of look up to me in the respect that I catch a lot of big fish and, and that's what they want to do. So I try to, I try to do it the right way to show them, you know, and Benny does this too. You know, you can, you can be cool and catch big fish and you can do things the right way. As a matter of fact, all those things are, are in sync with each other. And if you're not doing one or the other, you're not really that cool. You know what I mean? You're not, if you're mishandling the fish, I don't care how big of a fish you caught your, 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 your respect and, and everything I would have admired from that moment is gone. So I try to try to lead by example. And, and, and I also try to lead by example with the other guys in my area. Um, I like to show them that you can be successful and that you can run a great operation and be really busy without having to just let the clients do whatever they want. You know, a lot of guides, they get the client, like you mentioned a minute ago, Tony, like they get the, they get, they, they, they get the fish and, and everything's about the client. However long it takes the client to catch the fish, whatever the client wants to do after they have the fish. And if it's a release fish, they just throw it back in the water. The client follows my rules the whole trip, how they hold the rod, how they fight the fish, how they get the photo, everything about what happens is, is how I'm going to say it's going to go. I don't let clients abuse my tackle. I don't let clients abuse the fish. I don't let clients fight the fish wrong. It's going to happen the right way. And clients leave with a better understanding that way. And so many guides don't get that. They, they just, whatever the client wants, they just let the clients do. And I, 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 I cringe when I think about that because these clients, if you show them the right way and you give them a little bit of instruction, they're all too happy to follow it. And yeah, you're going to get a knucklehead every now and then that, that, that thinks they already know it all. And they're, they're not going to take your, your suggestions and your recommendations, but the majority of clients do want to, uh, to do the right thing. And, and, you know, I, I see more and more guides going in that direction too. We've kind of created a little bit of a stigma around here uh, in, in, in my fishery of about keeping redfish. Most of the guides don't do it at all anymore. Um, they know to handle the fish correctly. And, and, and if I see them mishandling the fish, I'm friends with these guys. I try to be, I'm the Switzerland of fishing guides when it comes to my area. I try to be nice to everybody, the old guys, the new guys, everybody in between. Cause it's really easy to, to be the opposite of that and be somebody that everybody dislikes. And I've, I've been more abrasive with my, uh, you know, my tone and, and, and my means of going about conveying my message. And it didn't get me anywhere. It made me enemies and, uh, it, it accomplished absolutely nothing. It was easy to be hot-headed and dramatic and, and, and have the, the no fucks given point of view, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Sure, it, it entertains a very small group of people, but it doesn't, it doesn't get you anywhere with the message you're trying to convey. By being friendly with people and respectful to people, even when they're doing things that I don't respect in general, I'm able to converse in a way that's meaningful with them and help them understand that you know, they can do things a better way and, and they take it to heart rather than being, um, 
standoffish about it or, 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 you know, pushing back on what you're saying and suggesting, Oh, everything's fine. You know, I'm, I'm doing fine. You know, make friends with people, push a positive message. And if you see somebody doing something wrong, talk to them the nice way. And uh, usually you get good results. And, and, and that goes on the water too. You know, I try to be nice to even people that aren't guides, people I, I've never even seen before. If I see them holding a redfish up by the gills, you know, vertically, I'm going to ask them nicely to please not do that and uh, explain to them why, hey, you know, that, that really isn't good for them. It hurts them when, when, when that happens. And, you know, these are all old fish, catch and release only. You know, we try to take good care of them. And if you're nice about it, most people are like, oh, okay, you know, some people just don't know. It's, it's surprising how many people don't know. And, and, and uh, you convey the right message. All this comes into this bigger picture of cultural change how people are influenced on social media by the people who are good at what they do. If you're a great fisherman, if you're a great guide, you have a responsibility to, to do the right thing because all these young guys are watching you uh, and not even just young guys, new anglers, everybody's watching. you. So, you know, lead by example, do the right thing, show people that they can do the right thing and don't be extremely critical of, uh, of people. Cause a lot of people just don't know. And even, even if they do know, and they're doing things wrong, come at them the right way and you're going to get better results. And now there, there is certain places and times with certain people, especially some of these, these Insta famous people uh, that know what they're doing and they deserve to, to, to be shamed for what they do uh, because they're putting likes and, and, and clout and, and in other things above uh, the well-being of the fish and they know better. But, you know, culturally, I think that we're, we're making really good progress, but, you know, on a management front, for those that aren't impacted by these cultural changes or that are new to the fishery, you know, there could be better management on the state level to help mitigate some of that. Did that answer your question, Cody? <laughs> yes, sir. No, I, I think, uh, I think what Billy just rounded up perfectly, but I think it's, it's about conveying perspective, right? I think teaching someone that the, the fish that they're keeping from is, you know, on a channel side is the same fish that they're trying to target that moves up into that grass on the flood tides later that month or later that day. And so trying to convey the connectivity of everything, it's, it's should be a bit easier in a, in an enclosed system where it's very easy as Billy was just talking about those fish live on those bank. Hey, you kill 10 fish off that bank. That bank is now 10 less fish. It is that easy to tie to, as opposed to some of the stuff we see with stripers, where it's a little bit harder to tell someone, hey, you just killed this fish in, in Maryland, and that fish was, you know, the next to be caught in central Maine, 100 miles up a river. You know, so so I, I hope uh, that, like Billy said, the fact that he's leading the charge in, in a a pretty tight knit community. I would say it's, it's the fact that it is enclosed and there's only so many boats in that area. And I know that the community is, is ever growing. I, I think that's a, a positive uh, outlook that we can take away from this is that there is a, a movement right now to do things the right way, not necessarily always be a hundred percent catch and release with everything you do. And it, you know, it's that, or that we don't make mistakes as anglers or guides or whatever it may be on the water, but that there is a movement right now. I think, I think we should be able to find some, some positivity in that. And one thing I do want to note is we, we kicked this podcast off with a little bit of a, a critical and more gloom and doom analysis of a situation that's going on, but do not want to deter that from the fact that there are still some pretty incredible 
fishing opportunities in, in this community in Mosquito Lagoon in Northeast Florida. And, and Billy Rotney is, you know, one of the premier guides. If, if you want to hold a, like he said, a, a 42 inch, 44 inch bull redfish that goes across your entire lap, catch it, fight it, feel its power, and then watch it swim away. There's a great network of guides uh, who are still able to, to pull that off. So this fishery is not gone. Um, it just needs some help. Yeah, it's all, all the reason to fight for is knowing that there's still special, special fish left here. Um, that it's not, it's not a lost cause. And, uh, you know, on, on that note, I just wanted to briefly wrap up what I was discussing earlier about the lagoon. You, Tony, you'd ask me, is, is, is it ever going to come back, you know, in my lifetime? Is there, is there a, a chance of, of a recovery? And, and I know this is a wide ranging podcast and, and this is a pretty finite issue with a specific fishery, but, you know, with any of these fisheries, if we make the right decisions, we, we can hopefully see positive changes in our lifetime because we've seen a lot of decline in our lifetime. So what's not to say that we couldn't see positive changes if we start to reverse some of this stuff. Within the, uh, the lagoon system, one thing that people should take note of is that, as I'd mentioned earlier, this, these, these brown tides do seem to be a natural cycle. Uh, there is historic evidence that they've occurred here before. Sebastian Inlet is another inlet uh, to the south of, uh, of of Ponce Inlet here in Central Florida. We're right we're right here by Daytona Beach and New Smyrna Beach, about 90 miles south of us is where Sebastian Inlet is. Sebastian's not a natural inlet. Ponce Inlet is a natural inlet. Historical reference suggests that some of the the original reasoning why Sebastian Inlet had been open was because the river quote unquote had fouled and that there was fish kills and that the people that lived along Sebastian. Uh, in, in, in that area there were, were under the impression that there was too much pollution entering in the river and they needed to flush the river out. And I can see how a brown algal bloom would give people that perspective. But if you think how many people lived in that area 100 plus years ago versus now, it's hard to believe that that amount of population density would cause the pollution of, a, of an estuary as big as a lagoon. So uh, it's, it's interesting to think that maybe that was another brown tide. Some of the other historical evidence that we have is that up here in, in uh, the New Smyrna area, in the Oak Hill area, we have some of the largest shell middens from Native Americans uh, in the state. We have big, big mounds of clams and oysters. And when they did core sampling on some of these, some of these mounds, they, they noticed that there was, there was uh, long periods of reliance on, on quahog clams, and then a shorter period of, of maybe a decade to 15 years of reliance on oyster, followed by return to reliance on clams for perhaps a hundred or more years and then back to oysters again and so on and so forth. So what that suggests is that that, that is evidence of a brown tide bloom to me, because one thing about the Oriumbra species of algae we have here is it's a very resilient type of algae. It's, it's a pelagophyte. Um, it has this, this coating on the cells called an extracellular polysaccharide coating, uh, also known as an EPS. If you read any of the scientific documents about this algae species, it's basically a sticky coating that stops filter feeding organisms like clams and oysters from being able to consume it. So oysters have a pretty neat method of ridding themselves of things that they don't want and keeping themselves clean. And that's by being exposed during low tide. So when an oyster is exposed during low tide, its shell uh, is dry and it's, it's hit by the sun. The temperature inside of the oyster can get extremely hot, probably over 100 degrees. And that allows the clam, uh, the, excuse me, the oyster to prevent algae from growing on its shell uh, and also to prevent things that are inside of it from being 
harmful to it. So it may, maybe even though it's ciliated feeding apparatuses get clogged by Oriumbra, it can kill off that Oriumbra on every low tide cycle and, uh, you know, be back to normal or able to filter feed again when the water comes back up. Clams on the other hand cannot do that. They're down in the sand bed. They have a, a siphon that comes up that they pull water in and uh, filter feed with. Clams are especially impacted by this brown tide algae and it, it kills them, the vast majority of them. So when you look at Native American shell mounds, there's no historical record written by Native Americans about what happened to the water quality in the area when they lived here uh, for thousands of years. But if we look at these shell mounds, nothing suggests that there was perhaps, you know, better evidence of a brown tide bloom than looking at a civilization that relied heavily for decades upon decades upon decades on quahog clams, then having to switch over to oysters uh, for a period of time and then going back to, to quahogs to suggest that something killed the clams. They didn't just change out their diet because they wanted to uh, or because they got tired of oysters after 100 or clams after 100 years and switched to oysters for a short period of time. Uh, something caused that. So th there is some historical evidence that shows that these, these algal blooms are, are natural and perhaps cyclical every maybe 100 plus years or so. Uh, an estuary will, one of these tidal lagoons, whether it's Laguna Madre in Texas or it's the Indian River Lagoon system in Central Florida, will go through one of these algal blooms. Now, in modern times, uh, is it likely that, that all of our, our stormwater runoff and septic tanks and, and, and leaky sewage systems and all that sewage spills are, are fueling it? Of course, they've done uh, Delta N15 studies on uh, the nitrogen isotope ratios in, in the macroalgae in the lagoon and it's the signatures match that of human wastewater. They can detect whether it's from pigs or, or chickens or whatever. And they did a lot of this in Chesapeake Bay to determine uh, nutrient loading sources uh, from from all the different areas because the watershed is so big up there, but they were able to to do that here. And of course, the the we don't have chicken farms and pig farms and and, and cow farms along the uh, the lagoon. So when they did that, the signature matched human wastewater. So we know that that's fueling the algal growth, whether it's macroalgae or otherwise in the estuary. And uh, you know, it's certainly made it worse. But I I think that over the next few years. Laguna Madre bloomed for 10 years, and then we started to see an improvement there. And over the next, we're at 10, we're at year 10 right now, uh, and we're starting to see some improvement in parts of the system. We haven't really seen grass growth yet, but we're seeing longer periods of of, uh, of clear water again. And that might be the the first step in in recovery because we need that that clear water to to last for a long period of time, and you know we'll start to see grass growth again from there. So, yeah. So you know, I think. I think if there's anything that we learned, and it's part of the reason we knew it before this podcast, we knew it before we started the organization, is that in different areas of the country, sometimes even in the states, that there's really well-intentioned, really smart leaders in the community that are trying to make a difference. And what we did was kind of create an association for this right that that while we focus mostly on policy we understand that it's usually death by a thousand cuts a lot of different things habitat clean water bad management right those are the three things so um you know i think it's just i, I think it's great how knowledgeable you are i think it's great that the story that you told 
think that areas like Mosquito Lagoon are, um, they're just special, even if you're not a fisherman. And, um, you know, what I tell people all the time, for me, with the policy stuff, you get all the time like, oh, you know, I'd, I'd love to get involved. I don't understand it. Oh, you know, this is just my hobby. Um, I don't I don't have time to go to these meetings. I don't have time to write these letters. I don't have time to give input. And like, um, for me, it's heartening to see a guy like you because I, I'm always dumbfounded by a very simple question is like, if you love something, don't you fight for it? Right. So um, it's just good to see other people that believe that these special places are worth fighting for and it's worth your time and it's worth your energy to learn the issues. And, uh, you know, to me, I think it's a life really well spent because much like releasing a fish, you know, what I know what we're trying to do is to leave a better future for the next generation. You know, don't, don't leave them with this crap that we have right now. So again, it, it, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty wonderful to see, all that passion and fire and it's just a different place with a different fish but it's the same message so i want to thank you for being on the guidepost i hope our listeners learned a lot and uh we look forward to you guys tuning into the next one thanks for having me i really appreciate it